dearly beloved people of God, I do bring greetings from the Presbyterian Church in Duras, Albania. Uh, before the Word of God, I would like to give you a short update on what God has been doing among us in Albania. And uh, to put it in a quicker context, uh, 30, more than 30 years ago, there were no known, no known um, evangelical or Protestant believers in the country of Albania. Uh, 20 years ago, there were no Reformed believers in Albania. 10 years ago, there were no particularized Reformed Presbyterian church, churches in Albania. Five years from now, we will have, Lord willing, our first Presbytery and uh, therefore our Presbyterian uh, denomination in Albania, the first of its kind since the, uh, since the apostolic times. Um, our uh, church plant the, that you've been sponsoring and supporting and praying for uh, since 2007 was particularized in 2019. Uh, we had Pastor Carl, who is no stranger, I, I suppose, to this pulpit, uh, together with a commission from Calvary Presbytery of upstate South Carolina. They came, they uh, ordained two ruling elders, um, and now our little church is a member of Calvary Presbytery, which has made Calvary Presbyterian International Presbytery, and they like to hear that, um, and has uh, made our church a member of, of Calvary Presbytery with all the obligations and, and privileges and, and joys too. Um, and in the meantime, the Lord has been bringing more reformed missionary force to Albania. In the country of Albania, we uh, have now uh, a Dutch reformed denomination. The equivalence of that will be Joel Beek, his denomination Holland. I think they're his old denomination um, uh, before they, they, they continued as two different entities. Um, and also we have there the Presbyterian Church of Brazil. And they're each of these two mission agencies. They have more than a dozen of people each, including children and, and, and women. Um, They're working on three preaching stations at the same time. The Dutch have been a little bit ahead of time, and they have uh, one church plant, which is in really good shape, and it could particularize tomorrow. Uh, the Presbyterians are a little bit, the Brazilians are a little bit uh, behind in their game. And they probably need another two, three years before they will be able to ordain ruling elders and deacons and particularize uh, themselves as a church. And we have been building a wonderful relationship with each other for the past seven, eight years, uh, to the point that we think it's very godly, it's very normal, it's very organic for us to enter eventually when the Dutch and the Brazilians particularize their first church plants each into a union, uh, forming their first Presby Presbyterian and Reformed Church in Albania, or the first Presbytery, which by default will, will result in uh, founding our first Reformed and Presbyterian denomination in Albania. And, and this has been my goal and my dream and my prayer since 2001 when I came to US to study theology in Greenville, South Carolina. And so this is the great news. Uh, it's, it's wonderful, uh, both those two uh, mission war, uh, uh, missionary 
groups have received their permission from their denominations to to do that and and go ahead and enter into a, a relationship with the rest of us and and so we have received the green light all we need to do is just have them particularize one one church each and then we'll have our first presbytery in the meantime uh, we have a vibrant uh, uh, publishing um, ministry uh, spearheaded by the Dutch and they do carry most of the weight on that they flip most of the bill um, we do have we have started a theological college that offers um, a bachelor of of uh, theology and it's a it's it's geared to train ministerial students for ministry and we have almost a dozen of students there and, and we're picking up students every year it's a six-year program we have a lot of also Baptist guys that have um, um, matriculated with us and hopefully God will bring them to the full maturity of doctrine um, but as it is we continue to remain in need of more missionary force uh, from U.S. and one of the purposes of the trip has been to speak to student bodies around uh, Presbyterian seminaries in North America and see um, interests, uh, seek interests and recruitment among ordainable men in the PCA. Um, so please do pray for that. Uh, last year, last, last week, we were at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Conference and we met a couple of guys that are that seem to be quite interested um, in, in missions to Albania and we would like to start including them into our ministry by bringing them as interns first and giving them uh, a summer internship experience to start with and then we'll see how it goes from there. Um, so this, this would be our, our major prayer point. Um, as we continue to talk to to visit RTSs um, in Charlotte and and even in Atlanta, so that is our, um, our biggest project for for now is to uh, have more church plants and have more uh, ordained or ordainable guys come to Albania and join us um, in in the ministry. Um, as of this year, we. Um, have decided that we're going to continue to pray and fast for this merger and uh, next year this year we'll be drawing a project plan a, a a game plan how we're gonna do this and starting next year we're gonna be um, debating and discussing um, all the points of polity and and hopefully write together with the Brazilians and the Dutch a book of church order and that way we um we will have uh, we'll do everything by by the book uh it will be a six forms of unity church we'll have the three forms of continental um uh unity and then we'll have the um westminster standards we have already published them in one volume together with the ancient creeds and that was done six seven years ago as a as a uh, jokingly as a good luck charm um, which will have uh, led the way into the, the right direction uh, we're very pleased with the spirit of brotherhood that and an understanding and sameness on the same page that we have with these other ministries and these missionaries um, and so please do keep us in your prayers so that we will 
walk the course, we will walk the straight line, the thin line of faithfulness and theological um, straightness and um, biblical orthodoxy as, as we try and, and build something that will last for God's glory and our being and will be an outpost of, of reformed world of, over there. Um, so this is my, my short my short update. I know that uh, we'll have plenty of time after the service to talk some more for anybody who might have any questions. <clears throat> but for now, let us uh, stand for the reading of the scriptures. I will be reading from Acts 15, um, verses 1 to 21. It's a long passage, but it's worthwhile. Um, and we will be looking at a short version of a biblical theology of missions, or rather a reason for from the Bible for worldwide missions. Acts 15, this is the word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders with this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles should that, that by the mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take for them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, and the remnant of the mankind 
that the remnant of the mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Thus far the reading of God's law. O Holy Spirit, we pray this evening that you will enlighten our eyes um, and then you will uh, ready our hearts to receive your word with much profit and joy and encouragement and zeal. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I remember when I was in the seminary, one of the um, courses that I took with much excitement, um, I have to admit, was a course in missions and evangelism. And I was excited because I was going to learn about all the nitty-gritty of church planting, everything, all the details that go with it. And boy, was I wrong. For 13 weeks, three hours each week, the uh, missions and evangelism professor taught us for six weeks what the gospel is and for another six weeks, why do we do missions? And then we had a one-hour seminar on how to do church planting. And what a bummer that is. Um, and it was so puzzling. What is he trying to pull off here? Uh, after all, we are Greenville men. We don't need to be reminded of what the gospel is. And two-thirds of the uh, seminary student bodies, is, they're foreigners and they're going back to their home country. Do <laughs> they know why we're not supposed to do missions? And immediately when I started uh, candidating in, uh, among different churches, that, that was always the issue. Why should we support missions to Europe? And ever since, there has not a day been gone um, without me having to defend and define what the gospel is. And unfortunately, many, many times, I had to do it online um, to other PCA ministers. And, um, and, and, and then you, you understand uh, with much displeasure uh, why you are always wrong and your professors are always right. You need to always know what the gospel is because the gospel is always being attacked. And you have to always be ready to defend why we do missions and evangelism because that is always being attacked. And that is exactly what we have in Acts 15. Yes, it's a wonderful passage that speaks about Presbyterianism and connectivism working. Um, but the main issue there is two. Two are the main issues. How do you get saved? And uh, the party of the circumcision, the, the Pharisaic um, party among the early church, says with absolute, um, in absolute words, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a categorical statement. 
that Jesus avails you nothing unless you add to it Moses. It's a categorical statement. It's not a maybe. It's not a 50-50. Moses, all or nothing. That's their statement. And their statement also is fueled by another wonder. That the Gentiles are being saved. And the whole fact has taken the early church by surprise. They're puzzled. They can't believe God will do this. And why will God do this? Why didn't even uh, announce it to us that he's going to do that on the first place? And that was the attitude that was behind the Pharisees um, in the early Christian church. And so what I want to do this evening is look first at James's response, uh, because I think it's very important, because he finds the reasons for mission from the Old Testament. And I want to see how he understands um, the ministry of the gospel, how he understands God's global mission to the Gentiles, and, and, and see how he, where he gets all of that, which is from the Old Testament, and how the apostolic band has always seen that also in the New Testament. So, first, uh, God's mission according to James, and then according to the Old Testament, and then God's mission according to the New Testament. When we go again to Acts 15, um, let's look first at the context. Um, what we see here, yes, it's a controversy over circumcision. It's been only 15 years since Jesus rose again. Um, some zealous Christians, they go to Antioch. They begin to preach that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. Jesus is not enough for that. Of course, Paul and Barnabas, that, that just turns their heat up. Um, and they react. Um, then they have a meeting at Jerusalem in Presbyterian fashion. They said, well, let's raise a commission for this. Let's write some study papers, and, and then we'll make a, a decision on it. And Luke records all those four um, events that happen there. In verse 5, Luke tells us how um, what the Christian Pharisees said, Gentiles must be circumcised. In verses 7 to 11, uh, we have Peter talk. And it tells his story. The Cornelius house, God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Gave them the Holy Spirit just as the same. Gave them a, a, pur a purification of their hearts by faith just as the same. And he insists that he saw how both Jews and Gentiles in the same matter have been saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 12, it's a short sentence. It's a summary that Paul and Barnabas, they, they also give their facts and how God has done the same kind of wonders and signs among Gentiles through the hands of normal ministers of the gospel, Paul and Barnabas. And finally, in verses 13 to 21, um, Luke tells us how James gives that the final um, appeal from the scriptures and how he seals the day and carries the day with that. 
And so in verses 13 to 18, we read that James says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, and notice that he does not say Peter, his, his Christian name, but he uses Simon, his Jewish name. Uh, he says, Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them, verse 13 again, a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will re rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes all these things known from old. Um, it's very important, James's summary, how he puts things together, how he coins things together. Um, because he, on purpose, he uses technical religious Old Testament language. First, he calls Peter Simon. He says, listen, I'm going to talk to you from the perspective of the Old Testament. And he says, here an apostle who connects Old Testament and New Testament together. And then he says that uh, God has taken a gen uh, the Gentiles, a people for his name. This is technical theological language that James is using. It's code language and everybody in the room understood exactly what he meant. In the Old Testament, Israel was the people of God. And now James is saying part of that Israel is also the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles inside of the church are now the new people of God. And he uses words like God visited the Gentiles. Well, yes, God can visit a nation to ruin them and to judge them and to destroy them. But he is not using it in that term. He's using it from a, a positive, it's a, it's a visitation for salvation, not a visitation for judgment. And he said, God has visited the Gentiles. Who are you to say, why did he do that? God has visited the Gentiles. And the purpose of God's visitation is to take them as his own people. And so James now says that the Gentiles who have come by faith in Jesus Christ are now the people of God, just like the spiritual Israel, just like the ethnic Israel who is a believer in Christ Jesus, together with the Gentiles, they are God's people, one people, united people. It's the same as what God had done for the Israel as an ethnic nation in the Old Testament. Now God is doing it for the Gentiles in the, new, in, in the new covenant, and now they're part of David's. They're part of the messianic kingdom. They're part of Christ. And then James lists the facts. First, first God himself did the visiting and took a people for himself. Who are you to complain or to quarrel with God or to not like it? Second, he says he visited, um, and what he visited were, were the uncircumcised Gentiles. What are you going to do about it? God did it. Who are you to have a quarrel with God about it? And third, he says that the instruments that God used were the basic means of grace. Preaching. Teaching. And that's how God saved them and included them in the church through, um, 
through the means of grace. And for James, these are decisive truths that are good enough to settle the matter. But then he says, well, but wait, there's more. I can prove it that it was supposed to be so all along from the pages of the Old Testament. And then he says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. And I'm going to use this phrase, the words of the prophets, to mean when we say apostolic doctrine, we mean the, the doctrine of the apostles. I'm going to use the term prophetic doctrine, and I don't mean what Pentecostals and holiness movements means by it. I'm going to mean the doctrine of the prophets in the Old Testament regarding missions and evangelism. Um, just like I will use the doctrine of the apostles regarding missions and evangelism. And he says the word of the Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophetic doctrine is that this whole thing was supposed to happen. There is no news on this. Don't be surprised. Why are you surprised? Don't you know the scriptures? Have you not read the scriptures? Have you not understood the scriptures? Or are you just simply not believing the scriptures? And um, the plurals, he says, the prophets in plural, James says, have repeatedly testified to these facts. And then what he does, he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11, 12. And this is typical in the pages of the New Testament. And even the prophets themselves do it throughout the Old Testament, where they will say, well, the prophets say, and then they quote one prophet. And this is what James does. He says, the prophets say, uh, let's take an example, a Amos 9, 11, 12. And then he says, after this, I, and it's God who speaks, after this I will return and I will re rebuild the tent of David. That has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and all the remnant of the mankind, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. And, of course, he gives a loose rendering of Amos because he's quoting it from the Greek Bible that most of the apostles used, used at that time. Um, and so he says, all the prophets agree with Amos. Same thing, this is prophetic doctrine on missiology. So what does Amos say? If we're to consider it also from, from the Hebrew Bible, um, we see that there are some very important terms. The first term is the word tent. God promises that he will rebuild the tent of David. Now, David lived in a castle, not in a tent, but it's a biblical word for uh, the gathering, the assembly of God's people. They, they, they gathered under the tent of the tabernacle to, to, to worship God. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a word for God's people gathered around their messianic king. So the tent of David is the people of God of the Old Testament gathered around their messianic king. And through, through, through whose king, the Messiah himself ruled above them. And it was a kingdom that God gave to David. And it was supposed to be an eternal kingdom. Eternal kingdom. That eternity of that kingdom gets fulfilled only on Jesus Christ, who is both David's son and David's Lord. And this is the people of God throughout all the ages, Amos is saying, and, 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 and James is saying also. 
And the original Hebrew text also speaks of a restored Israel possessing the land of Edom. Edom was the enemy of Israel, the historic enemy of Israel. And there are many prophecies against the nation of Edom that God was going to destroy and ruin them because of their betrayal of Israel. But here in Amos, we see that God says that, listen, I'm going to stretch, I'm going to stretch the tent of David to the point that is going to include underneath of it even the nation of Adam. And you may even translate this as man or mankind, but the message is the same. The, 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 the nation of Edom is, is a representation of the Gentile nations, the enemies of God. And God had promised through prophet Amos that he was going to make the nations of this world the nations of his son and have them all included under the tent of the people of God and make them all one people the spiritual Israel and it is at this point that the rest of the assembly gets that aha gets that connection with the missions of the Old Testament and the implication for them is clear there was no longer an ethnic Israel and then um, other Gentiles inside of of the church there is only the spiritual Israel the promises have give, been given to Israel are now um, owned by everybody who is in Christ Jesus whatever their ethnic background may be and it's it's an important lesson that we see when James cites and uses the Old Testament um, as being fulfilled in the New Covenant is a principle that we should always keep in mind when we read and apply the Bible. The, the promises of God made in the Old Covenant area, they're all fulfilled in the New Covenant. There's no two peoples of God, there's one people of God. And, and if I were to, to name the two Testaments, the Old and the New, I will name them the promises made and the New Testament promises kept. Promises made and promises kept. This is our Christian Bible today. And then James in verses 19 and 21 gives his conclusion as follows. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's ready every Sabbath in the synagogue. So he's saying, now we disciple the nations. We disciple the nations to live by the Bible. They are saved by faith. They are saved by grace through faith for the glory of God, to be a worshiping community, people of God, and therefore they have to keep themselves pure and not live like Gentiles, like as they did before. And so what James is saying is that the New Testament church is not a parenthesis, an intermission between the main event, the calling of the old Israel and the final salvation of, of the old Israel. 
um, the church of Jesus Christ, James is saying, is not a secondary thought in the mind of God. It's not a later invention or a necessity that follows because of the fall of Israel, but has always been the purpose of God in Christ to do missions to the world. There's no room for, there's room for wonder and praise, but there is no room um, for surprise. And since James is arguing from the Old Testament and applying it to the New Testament, I would like to do it again and, and look a little bit, a few more verses, a few more moments um, in, in this missions according to the Old Testament and how it gets fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, and, and we need to, to read the Bible in, through that, that lenses, redemptive history, that is one story, develops in stages, and that's, um, and that's how we are to apply it too. And we are to see this worldwide mission, uh, call to mission, even from the very first uh, pages of the Bible. When God first made the world, he planted in the middle of the world a, a garden sanctuary like a temple. And in it he placed his image, a man and a woman, and who him commissioned in what we call as the cultural mandate to expand this garden temple, produce babies, make them worshipers, and push the walls of this garden temple until this word, walls, has, have the same size as the rest of the earth. The rest of the earth was supposed to be a temple, a worship place, a holy place for God with his people worshiping him. And so humanity was to reflect, to resemble, to represent the greatness and the glory of God on a global scale. But what we see is that this mankind fail and the sin enters but it's it's not just the problem of sin it's it's that now this this greater glory of god that has to be produced um, on a global scale by humanity now it's not his mission anymore and this humanity needs to be saved to come back to to god's original original mission for for them and so um our first parents rejecting this calling, um, now they become a mission field. What does God do? He comes to the garden temple because our God is a missionary God and God and comes and looks for men, says, where are you? And what is the other step? He purifies them, he cleans them, he saves them. He offers a sacrifice to the Father. And I do believe he's the second person of the Trinity because Jesus says in the Gospel of John that nowhere, no one has ever seen God the Father except the Son who has made him known. All the epiphanies in the Old Testament are, there's got to be from the, by the second person of the Trinity because no one has ever seen the Father except the Son who has made him known. And so now he offers the way of salvation is by blood. And you have the second person of the Trinity on a mission. 
in this world to save mankind. And then he gives a promise to Adam and Eve. Now we read the Bible, we know it's in the Old Testament, and everybody thinks, well, whatever is in the Old Testament is all Jewish stuff. Adam and Eve are the whole humanity. They're not Jewish, they're not Gentiles, they're just Adam and Eve. They're just Adam and Eve. It's the whole humanity, and to the whole humanity, the second person of the Trinity, I believe, says, I will put an enemy between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's the Proto-Evangelion, the very first announcement of God, of what God is going to do in history. And speaking of the seed that springs and is this mighty tree that covers the whole earth, Isaiah 11 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and they shall not hurt, verse 9, or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. How? Unless God meant for world evangelization. Unless God meant that the salvation was for the whole world and not only for Adam and Eve or, or, or for, for the tribe of Jesse. And then he adds, verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for all the people of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. This is prophetic missiological doctrine, all the nations. And we see that um, it's clear from, from the fall of, of Adam that now the world needs a curse overcoming blessing. We have the story of Noah. And then we have the story of uh, the seven different family groups from uh, after Noah from the, the, the Tower of uh, Babel. And in that context of this 70 families, every, the whole race kind, the whole humankind comes from these 70 families, one or the other. In this context, God calls Abraham to himself and says, I will make you a blessing to all those other 69 families. And he says, we read in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, now the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, still, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. At this point, notice that it's nation as one singular nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The other 70 families of the earth from the time of Noah will be blessed in Abraham, the father of a multitude through a nation. But then we have a movement in God's revelation given to Abraham because now not only he will be a father of a, of a mighty nation, but he will be great even among many, many nations. He will be a father of many, a multitude of nations, and all through a single male delivering. Verse 17, 6 and 7, we 
read, Behold, says God, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. In, verse in, in chapter 12, it's the father of a nation. In chapter 17, is a father of a multitude of nations. And therefore, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and the kings shall come from you. And then we have more escalation of missiological prophetic doctrine. In Genesis 22, it says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring, which, by the way, is in singular as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, singular again, shall possess the gate of his enemies. For the gates of, of hell will never be able to resist the onslaught of the church. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This singular offspring, in him all the nations will be blessed. And through him, Abraham is the father of them all. And so at this point in Genesis 22, the flow of history has been set. Abraham becomes first a single nation in the promised land. And then we have the, uh, the covenant under Moses. And then we have repeated, repeated prophetic doctrine. There is a single blessing, a royal deliverer, a messianic figure, a priest, a king, a prophet, a all-in-one at the same time who will come and spark an outward movement of curse, overcoming grace as God's reconciling blessing will reach all the nations. And missions, as we know of it today, is, is this message of God's reconciliation with the nations. And that will become operative only when this offspring comes that has the powers to crush the head of serpent. And we see this being, be, be, being even more detailed, even more so during all the other mosaic, mosaic and, and, and Davidic covenant um, and, and we know that we, that we see that there is, there, is, uh, there is signals that this is how it's going to happen. When, remember when Israel came out of Egypt? It wasn't just ethnic Israel. There were Egyptians. There were other nations who came out of Israel and joined the people of God. And they were the spiritual Israel. We know, remember Rahab, the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, Uriah, the Hittite, and all the strong men his personal escort of David. They are all non-Israelites ethnically, but they're part of the spiritual Israel. They're believers. Israel has always been a multi-ethnic community ever since the Old Testament times. In Exodus 19, we read, for you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is the purpose of this kingdom of priests? But to offer praise to God, the ultimate king, and prayers for the, for the rest 
of the families of the earth. A treasured possession among the peoples, the whole earth, all the nations are gods, says God. Um, and Israel, during the Mosaic administration, had a high calling. They had a missionary call too. And I'm not referring um, to, to, to prophetic moments in history when prophets go across the river or across the sea to go to Nineveh because God told them to, to preach. Yeah, those are some, some very fantastic excursions of, of God's prophets into, into the Gentiles. But they always had a call to do evangelism and missions. And theirs was a little bit different um, than we think of today. Theirs was come and see. Come and see how great our God is. Come and see how greatly God will bless you if you are to be in a covenant with him and keep his commandments. That was the point when we read from Exodus 19 or, 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 or um, Deuteronomy 4, see, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering and take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations who when they hear all these statutes and all these covenantal blessings, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what a great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us. Whoever we can call upon him. And what a great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I've said before you today. And Moses is saying, live righteously. You will be blessed covenantally. And then you can tell to the nations, come and see. You want this? Come and get it. By faith, join the people of God. That's why Ruth never left Naomi. That's why the Hittites, the strong men of David, joined him. That's why Rahab helped Israel. It was not exactly always go and tell. It was come and see. And we still have that today, don't we? It's come and see when we have Christian families the way God wants us to have them. When we go in the workplace as Christians and stay as Christians. When we go into any aspect of life, even in politics, in our neighborhoods, when we clean the trash can outside, doesn't matter. You do it so that they will come and see the sweetness and the glory of God in your life. So we still have that. But in the New Testament, we also have the go and tell added to that. And so, um, so all this prophetic doctrine is, is a, a great hope for the day of the good news of, of the global blessings. And, uh, and, and God had many more, many more prophets that said the same thing. In Isaiah 42, for example, we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, of course, the Israel today, the ethnic Israel, would like to interpret all this messianic, 
passages from Isaiah, all these servant passages, as they are called, there are about five of them, that would say, well, it really means Israel. It doesn't mean Messiah. We interpret them to be Messiah. You can go to an Israelite today and show um, Isaiah 53 is going to say, well, yeah, it talks about the, the nation of Israel. How? How does it talk about the nation of Israel? Um, when has Israel brought forth justice to the nations? When has Israel, God through Israel, changed the nations? That Israel, that servant, is the Messianic king, is the Messiah. In verse 6, Isaiah 6 said, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I will give you as a, for as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. It's the Father talking to the Son, I will give you to be a light to the nations, to open the eyes, not just to, ha ha, here I'm a light, there's nothing you can do, there's no benefits for you whatsoever, I'm the light. The light is given for people to see and benefit from the light. And verse 7 says, A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so this was God's Old Testament purpose. And we see this understood in this way, this prophetic doctrine is now apostolic doctrine. And it's one and the same. And New Testament is clear that Jesus is the one and the very one that Moses said there would be a great prophet, the great prophet coming. Whatever Isaiah spoke and all the other prophets anticipated, all this has been fulfilled in Jesus. This is, look how, how, how um, Paul, for example, in Galatians 3, reads Old Testament scripture. He says uh, in verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith. What scriptures is he talking about? The New Testament has not been written yet. It's the Old Testament. So he's saying, and the Old Testament foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith. Now this is not only prophetic doctrine, this is also apostolic doctrine at this point. He says, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. It's not will come. Will come was in the Old Testament. Has come now to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. And verse 16 says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Jesus is that singular seed of Abraham. And it's, it's, it's a good implication you will... Uh, I will add, uh, regarding biblical interpretation, we do believe in, in the inspiration of the scripture. We believe that God inspired not only the stories and the message and the flow of it, but God has in inspired every single word of it. And God inspired also 
the, 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 whatever the verbs are in plural or in singular. Um, that's called the verbal inspiration of the scripture. So we have to pay attention to those details because that can lead you to heaven or to hell. And, and, and Paul says that that offspring is promised by, uh, to, by God to Abraham. That it was going to make Abraham the father of all the nations. Well, it was going to bring the blessing to all the 70 families of the Tower of Babel. That is Christ. And then we read also in Matthew 4, uh, we see how Jesus is that God's servant, that God's royal servant who brings light to the nations. We read in Matthew 4, for example, and leaving Nazareth, Jesus went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken, and you know what's coming, what was spoken by the prophets Isaiah, by the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. And what did prophet Isaiah say? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's pointing to himself because there is no images there so you have to understand when he says the the kingdom of god is at hand behold here i am the kingdom of god is right here i i, I think it's funny when some people I, i've heard this once said to me well jesus never went overseas jesus never went to the gentile land to preach the gospel i think you're a fool you never read the bible jesus in one example jesus went to preach the gospel to decapolis it's a Greek name, Deca, ten polis cities. There were ten Greek cities, and Jesus went to do missionary service there. So don't tell me Jesus never went to, 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 to Gentile lands. And then, um, and then what we read even further is that now Jesus is the one whom the peoples from all the nations are, are hoping. This, this is... This is where the prophets, of course, again agree. And, and, and Paul takes this in Romans 15 and says, uh, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to Abraham, patri patriarchs, and all the prophets. And, verse 9, in order that, that's a purpose clause, that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, not for his judgment. There be plenty of Gentiles glorifying God, God for his judgment in hell. But right now, Paul is talking about evangelism and missions. God brought Jesus so the Gentiles will glorify God. Us, Gentiles, will glorify God tonight for his mercy. As it is written, and then he quotes, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Psalm 18. And then again said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples exalt him. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from Psalm again. And then again from Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who will arise the rule of the Gentiles. He will, in him will the Gentiles hope for salvation that is. But for Paul, 
Now Paul is a master of switcheroos, and you have to watch him when he does it because it's really cool. Um, so Paul says that now what Paul does is he will take Old Testament promises that have to do with Christ and insert himself or the people of God into it. And what Paul is saying when he does that is that the mission of Christ has become our mission. The mission of God in Christ is our mission too. And so in Acts 13, for example, Paul says, uh, we read, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, um, is in a, in a synagogue, so he's talking to the Jewish people. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles so that the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Whoa, wait a second, you just quoted Isaiah. And that is clearly a messianic passage. We just read it. I have made you, is God the Father talking to God the Son, a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul says, this you here is the Messiah and the church. Same thing. He takes um, Isaiah 52.7, a messianic royal. Um, it's, it's where he says how beautiful are, are the, the feet of those who bring the good news. And here's what Paul does with it in, in, in Romans 10, 14, 15. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's the logic. And then Paul says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And that is a messianic passage speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, the preacher, the ultimate preacher. And Paul is talking about every single preacher of the gospel, every single evangelist, every single missionary. And um, where, whereas God has called Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Peter also does another switcheroo. And... Um, and he says, listen, now this applies to the New Testament church, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. And we read in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you, and he's talking to everybody, Jews and Gentiles, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a reworking of Old Testament language that at first was only for the ethnic Israel. And now he says, this is spiritual Israel. This is where we are right now. And so now Paul and Jesus and, and, and James and Peter, they're saying there is not anymore just a come and see call to ministry. There is also a go and tell call to ministry and God is escalating it in one sense in the other sense he is not it's just the same thing 
he is continuing to do what he had been doing all along, worldwide missions and evangelism. It is just the final stage. The Great Commission is just the final stage of the Great Commission. The words of the Great Commission are just the final stage of the Great Commission of God for the salvation of the world. And, 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 and we know very well those words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples and make disciples of all the nations. There is no new doctrine. It's just the continuation of God's mission to the world from the very beginning. Make nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth age, because I am the ageless one. This is the prophetic slash apostolic doctrine of missions from the old and the new. Now, how can you not be Presbyterian after this? Because this covenant theology, it's promises made, promises kept. There is one people of God. There was one, there is only just one mission. There is one ministry. There is one salvation. There's one method of salvation. And in all this, God is glorified. The purpose, John Piper was right when he said the ultimate end of mission is worship. And he will say that the uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship to the triune God that is. Because everybody is worshiping something. Football right now, I don't know what people worship on Monday, maybe the fact that they're not home, um, or on Tuesday, whatever is coming on on Tuesday. But everybody's worshiping somebody. And the question is, um, the, the, the issue is to worship the true God, the, the, the living God of the Bible, the triune God. That's the call to mission. It's not to um, just save people and wash them in baptism and iron them, uh, a little bit with a little bit of catechizing and folding it and keeping them in churches. It's, it's, it's not that. It's worship. God, the Son, died on the cross because we're not, we were not worshiping the Father. That's the purpose of missions. Unfortunately, today in our dear denomination, there are people who do not worship God after they have been saved because they love their sin of former identities, be it political, social, or sexual. They will rather continue in that rather than worship God. There are ministers among Muslim lands in our denomination and mission agencies that when they go overseas and they preach the gospel, whatever version of the gospel they are preaching these days, uh, that they will tell the Muslim converts to stay inside the mosque, to continue to be Muslims, to not identify with Christ publicly, to not worship the triune God. 
but to continue to worship Allah and read the Quran and sing the Quran. But that's not the purpose of missions. The purpose of missions in the first temple, the temple of Eden, was that God was going to create through Adam and Eve a race kind, a humankind, all worshippers. And they're going to produce and reproduce to the place where they will have to extend the borders of the temple in the Garden of Eden to where the shape and the size of the Garden of Eden will match the size of the earth, all populated with worshippers. How does the New Testament end? In Revelations 21, we have the new heaven, new earth. And when you kind of really look at it and study carefully, you see that this new temple that is on this face of this earth kind of is the same size with the size of the earth. Kind of has the same shape with the shape of the earth. And everybody in there is worshiping God. That's where the history is running at. That's what we get in the new heaven and the new earth. Now we have a, a temple earth. Not anymore a garden temple, but an earth temple full of worshipers, true worshipers of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And that is the biblical theology and the purpose of missions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will continue to uh, grow upon our hearts this greater vision for your glory, for the purpose of mission, this uh, greater confidence in your single plan, your eternal plan for salvation through Christ, through um, whom we pray this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.